Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillah ve salatu ve selamu ala Resulillah ve ala ahlihi ve sahbihi ve men vela. Eşhedü en la ilahe illallah ve ahdahu la şerika ve eşhedü enne Muhammeden abdühü ve resulühü. Ama ba'd. We have, alhamdülillah, finished the first section. So as we said in the opening session, there's ten sections to the burda of Imam al-Busiri. Rahimahullah, this poem praising the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the first section is the section on love and ghazal. So we talked deeply about loving the Prophet and loving Allah, loving the believers and all kinds of other themes revolving around that, that idea. Um, and now we move into the second section. The second section still, we don't get directly to the Prophet yet. That's the third section. The second section is about the nafs. It's about the soul. And there's a reason for this. Right, there's a reason for this. Which is essentially, you open by talking about, or he opens by talking about loving the Prophet And then we're going to get into all of these great qualities of the Prophet. There will be a section praising him, there will be a section about his miracles, there will be a section about the Qur'an, and then about Isra and Mi'raj, and then about different things in his life, and there will be a section on Jihad, and all of this kind of stuff will come in the life of the Prophet But before... You get there. You see, when, when you have a, a worldly love, people have an easier, quicker understanding of it. You love something in this life, it's very near to you, you do what you need to do to get it, and so on. But when we talk about love in the context of loving Allah, or we talk about love in the context of loving the Prophet, now this is not just a worldly issue. This is an issue of spirituality at its deepest order. Which means that in order to truly love the Prophet ﷺ, in order to truly love Allah, there are going to be obstacles in the soul that have to be overcome. You have to work towards attaining that level of love. Um, just any love is the same. But especially here, you have to... No love is attained without work. No love is attained without work. But here you have a special type of work that's needed. So if he's opening by, by love of the Prophet and then going to the Prophet's characteristics, then what is the thing that gets in between you and fully loving the Prophet the way that we need to? And of course, as we talked about, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, the evidence of loving the Prophet is in one's actions. That if you love Allah, then follow me. Prophet ﷺ is being commanded by Allah to say, if you love Allah, then follow me. So that the evidence then of the love of the Prophet ﷺ is in the action. So what is it that's going to get between the person and them fully living out that which they want to live out? It's their soul. So he takes a part here to talk about the issues of the soul, the issues of the nafs. What is it that's going to get in the way? So that's going to last, you know, just probably, I think it's about... Uh, 14 or 15 lines so we begin these we finished 12 lines pretty much I think in the translation you guys have is 12 lines right this is line 13 I think uh, and then we're gonna take you know 15 16 more for this section inshallah so the first one bismillah <laughs> which could be translated as 
Thanks to its foolishness, my ill-urging ego has paid no heed to the warner, white hair and decrepitude. White hair and decrepitude. So, if you remember, the way this previous section ends is he's talking about how he was getting advice from different places and how he didn't take the advice and his old age gave him advice and he didn't even take the advice of people who were elderly and how, you know, older people, their advice should be accepted. They don't have anything invested in it, so to speak. So now he's continuing with that, but it's transitioning now the focus on the soul. So thanks to its foolishness, Amarati Bisu, my ill-urging ego has paid no heed to the warner, and the warner is what? It's white hair and decrepitude. So the first point here is that the uh, The first point here is that the nafs We're just going to use nafs instead of soul Because I think it's uh, As much as I fully believe in translating as many things as possible I also believe in preserving some words Because some words are just so important So nafs is a very central word in, in, in the Muslim vocabulary So it's important I think to use it What is the nafs? It's really like your internal force that pushes you to do things you shouldn't be doing essentially in the end if it's trained and it's and it's good it's it's your internal force if it's if it's been trained in a good way it might encourage you to do good but if it's been left then it's going to just push you towards bad which is some of the verses will come later to talk talking about that in more detail so there's three types of nafs that are mentioned in the quran three types of nafs that are mentioned in the quran the first one is the one that's in this verse. Amarati bisu. As Yusuf salam says in Surah Yusuf, nafsi. Uh, then he says, I don't, I don't basically um, claim that I have full innocence or anything like that. Talking about the the situation where the woman was trying to seduce him. This is that the nafs, it commands people to bad, pushes people towards bad. The ego gets involved and it pushes you towards bad. Now, does that mean that Yusuf salam is not a good person? Of course, we shouldn't misunderstand the verse. The verse is just, this is from the humility of Yusuf. It's not from him saying, actually, I was like, you know, it's not like he was saying he really wanted to do something bad and Allah just saved him. But he's, it's, an act, it's a statement of humility that all of us realize that no matter what situation we think we're in spiritually, no matter how good we think we are spiritually, uh, if we leave our ego and our nafs to itself, the amaratun bisu, it will call you then to those things. SubhanAllah, one leader in the community, I was talking to him recently, and he was talking about all the work that he's done, mashallah, and the things he's accomplished over the course of 20, 25 years. And he said, if I was to tell you that I don't have to check my sincerity, I would be lying. He said, Alhamdulillah, my resolve is firm. That I'm going to keep doing the work that I'm doing and my resolve is there. He's like, but the, but the sincerity, I have to check it all the time. Because it very much easy, it can be easily become other things. It can become you want to have friends, it can become you want to be in a position of power, it could become that you want to be the one who controls things, that you're at the top of an organization that has money, all of this kind of stuff. You see this in Masajid. A lot of people are not really so primarily considered about, considered, um, interested in the concerns of the community. 
but they're interested in being involved in the masjid because it gives them power. Because when you go to the city council or the mayor or whatever it is and you tell them, yeah, I'm on the board of this institution and it has this much budget and we have this many people at our weekly congregation, then that person is more likely to listen to you. So it's an issue of power. It's not an issue of serving the community. Now, you could serve the community and still leverage that power, but that's a different, that's different, right? But wanting it just for that uh, can become a fitna. Wanting to be looked at, wanting to be respected, wanting any number of things. So the nefs, it commands towards evil. Uh, so it's the choice here, you know, if, if these three levels, they're a progression, but they're not static. So what does that mean? There's the first level, which is this one, and there's the second one we'll talk about, and the third one. And there's a progression through those. But just because you reach to one doesn't mean you can't drop to the other. So this is very important. Just because you reach to number two doesn't mean you can't drop to one. Uh, it's not like a station that you reach. It's more like a state that you have. It can change. So uh, the first one, this issue of the nefs being commanding towards, towards evil, the important thing for getting past that stage, really, is it's a choice. You have to choose to not live that kind of life. If you choose to not live that kind of life, where you're just doing whatever you want, whenever you want, then now you move into the second stage. The second stage mentioned in the beginning of Surah Al-Qiyamah is Al-Nafs Al-Lawamah. Al-Nafs Al-Lawamah, which is the nafs that is self-lamenting. Self-lamenting. Meaning what? means this is the nafs that blames itself. Sometimes it's going okay, sometimes it's not going okay. But it's in a process of struggling. So it's, it's, there's a conversation going on. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? Oh, you didn't do that for the right reason. You only did that so they would do this. And you catch yourself all the time. Anyone who's actually focusing on this, you catch yourself all the time. That no, actually, that, I shouldn't have said that. There was really no need for me to say that. I really only said that so that people would respect me. You know, it happens all the time. So, nafs al is this one. It's self-lamenting. So if you make the choice that you want to go down the route of disciplining the self, then you're going to get to the second one, which is you're in, you're in argumentation, and you're going back and forth. Uh, and then there's, there's things that are, are related to that development. The most central issue about this, this choice, as... Um, you know, there's many, many different definitions that have been given to the spiritual path. Uh, but one of the definitions, as given by Sidi Ahmed Zarruq, uh, rahimahullah, one of the great scholars of Islam, uh, he, he defined it as Sidq Tawajjuh in Allah. Sidq Tawajjuh in Allah, which means that someone honestly and truly turns towards Allah. So this is what it is. If you do that, then you get to stage two. Honestly and truly turn towards Allah. So this means now everything that I do, my concern and what I'm doing is Allah. Is Allah pleased with this? Is He not? And so that then takes us into the second stage. Now once you're in the second stage and you're trying to get to number three. Number three is the one that's mentioned in Surah Al-Fajr. That... Uh, uh, mutma'inna. The, the nafs that's at ease It's at peace With itself it's The nafs that's at ease and peace with itself So then how do you get from the second one to the third one? Keeping in mind that you're probably not going to stay at the third one Unless you're like a great 
pious person, inshallah, all of you are, and you'll stay in the third one. Um, but the real goal is to be at the third one when you die. Right? Like this is, that's where you want to be when you die. Because that means that you're now at peace with your Creator. Um, so, how do, you, how do you move from number two to number three? And, and that's, a, that's a real issue. You know, for anyone who's trying to take their relationship with Allah seriously, that's a real issue. You want to move from this place where you're really struggling to a place where you're maybe you're not all the way completely at peace, but you're getting there. You're farther along the progression. And so there's a number of things. The first is that one must uh, struggle to do all of the obligations and recommendations. So obligations obviously being primary, as we've talked about before. Uh, but really this is the first place to start. Am I trying to get past? Because this whole... Um, I thought I had another good quote here. Yeah. The main work of the path is to do all obligations and recommended. Eat halal from a lawful income. Eliminate blameworthy qualities and acquire praiseworthy ones with the sharia as one's guide. So you take the sharia as your guide. And as you take the sharia as your guide... You make sure that you do all those things you're required to do. And you stay away from all of those things that you're not supposed to be doing. And then you slowly take it to the next level, which is you start doing more recommended things. And you start staying away from more disliked things. That's, that's all in the first category. The second category is you make sure that you eat halal from a halal income. You eat halal from a halal income. It's very, very important. That there's a relationship between what we put into our lives and what we get out of our lives in our hearts. Uh, oh, you messengers, as Allah says, oh, you messengers, uh, eat from that which is good and pure and do good deeds. There's a relationship with here. There's a relationship here. You can't eat that which is good if your income is not good. So these are both related. You can't be like, you know what, I need extra money because this organic food and these less greasy things and all of this stuff is extra expensive. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and sell these uh, products that are not halal in order to make extra money and then I'm going to buy this stuff. So then I have halal food coming in. <laughs> your halal food that came in came from haram money. So both of them are interrelated. Of course there's limits. Not everyone can afford these things. You just do the best that you can. And Allah is generous and Allah understands. Uh, number three is that you eliminate blameworthy qualities and acquire praiseworthy ones. So you eliminate blameworthy qualities and acquire praiseworthy ones. Which is, you know, that's basically... This whole thing is basically you do Islam. Instead of talking about it and listening to it, and you actually do it. It's basically all this is saying. So you just do Islam. You understand it and you do it. Uh, which is, of course, much harder than listening, listening to it or talking, talking about it. Uh, so blameworthy qualities, you know, are things like anger, jealousy, hatred, um, backbiting, looking down on others, arrogance, all that kind of stuff. Praiseworthy qualities would be things like generosity, humility, kindness, uh, gratitude. All of those things are praiseworthy qualities. So you, you try to slowly but surely chip away at the bad ones and instill the good ones. Um, if you really want to take this seriously, you can just put yourself on a test. 
You want to put it, I'll give you an easy version and a hard version. So maybe you decide the blameworthy quality you have is that you tend to lose your temper and say things that are not nice. For example, someone maybe has this quality. So the easy version of this is they make the intention that they're going to really pay attention to this particular issue for the next seven days. And if they make a mistake in the seven days, they start their seven days over. So it could take a hundred days, but you're going for seven. If you feel like seven is too easy, mashallah, then you can do forty. Forty is very hard. Like, try not backbiting someone for forty days. Try not being angry about something like beyond a level that's acceptable for forty days. Try not complaining for forty days. Try any of these things for forty days. It's very very difficult. Um, we had a different version of this when we were in college. It was related to push-ups. So the brothers decided on an entire list of things that they weren't going to say. Um, and if you got caught saying them, or you caught yourself saying them, then you had to do push-ups. And mashallah, after four or five days, people really cleaned up their language. And it was a, there was a good progression. Because after you clean up the language, then you have to move on to other things. So we moved on to all kinds of negativity. You know, anyone who says anything negative, I need to go back and start this again. Um, and then you have to do push-ups. So it was very, um, it was very good, alhamdulillah. But you can do that. That's not you know, unlawful in Islam or something. You're not, you're not creating a new legislation that you're forcing everyone to do. You're just trying to do this for yourself. It's not, it's not something that's, that's a problem. So that's, that's the first part of it. Uh, that's most, some of that's outward and some of it's inward So outward you're avoiding what's unlawful and disliked The inward is that you're trying to train the heart Through love, dhikr and gratitude So you're training the heart to love that which Allah loves you're Training the heart to love Allah, to love His Messenger, to love goodness All of these type of things And, and you know it's a training um, And it has consequences I mean it's just like everything else in life so you do that with, with love, you do that with dhikr, you know, there's any number of things you can do for dhikr, but it's very important to be engaged in dhikr every day. Um, whether that's, you know, something like uh, the word al-latif, or whether that's the ma'thurat, or whether that's fortress of the Muslim, it doesn't really matter, to be honest, as long as you choose something and you stick to it. If you choose it and you stick to it, then you'll be okay, uh, and you'll bear, bear the fruits of it, inshallah. And then there's other things you can do. Like say astaghfirullah a hundred times a day Or say Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad a hundred times a day or something The idea is just to These have of course all precedent The Prophet used to do these things and so on So you just That's part of training the heart And the other issue in training the heart is gratitude Gratitude is more difficult sometimes But gratitude is such a beautiful thing When you do train your heart to have gratitude It completely changes everything in life uh, because the whole perspective on life changes the, the, the heart becomes a lot more vast A lot wider Can encompass a lot more Doesn't have that constricted feel So being able to see good It doesn't mean that you're blind to bad you know, being, Having gratitude doesn't mean that you're blind to problems It doesn't mean you're blind to oppression or anything else It just means that you're also able to see good uh, And it's important to, to balance that out one of the scholars, Abdul Aziz al-Dabbaq, he said, To be attached to the real, al-haq, most glorious and exalted, keeping ever at his door, 
taking refuge in him with every motion and rest, fleeing from the moments of inintention, inattention that intersperse those with presence, and in short, disciplining oneself to hold ever fast to Allah, mighty and majestic, and persisting therein, even if one is not engaged in a great deal of outward worship. So the idea is, even if you're not engaged in a lot of outward worship, your heart can still be in a state of remembrance. Maybe you're not able to do the extra prayers. Maybe you're not able to do the extra fasting. Maybe you're not able to read the amount of Qur'an. It doesn't mean that your heart can't be with Allah. Your heart can still be with Allah. So the idea here is to increase consistently that presence, that mindfulness, to use words that people like now, uh, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this, this is the goal really. And then you attain to step three, the soul at peace. Again, uh, it's not something that's guaranteed to last forever. But you may have an experience, you may have an evening where you really feel like you're at peace. You may have a week where you really feel like things are going well, and then you maybe slip and you keep going. This is life. If, it was, if, it, if you didn't have to struggle like that, we'd all be in paradise. And alhamdulillah, we're not in paradise. That's the qadr of Allah, we're not. So inshallah, we will be, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from us and forgive us. I mean. The other thing in this verse is that the heedlessness of the evil inciting soul is a result of the ignorance. So if you see what it said in the, in the, in the verse, the verse says, Thanks to its foolishness, my ill-urging ego has paid no heed to the warner. So the reason for the ego, the, the, the nefs here, ignoring what it's supposed to be listening to is that it's ignorant. It doesn't actually know what it's supposed to be listening to. It's not paying attention. It doesn't realize the importance of it. And it's such an interesting concept. You know, such an interesting concept. And it's such a scary concept. Because the most terrifying thing about ignorance is that you don't know that you're ignorant. <laughs> I mean, that's really the most terrifying thing about it. You could be completely ignorant and not realize that you're ignorant. And I can very uh, confidently say that I've gone through many stages of life where I exhibited many qualities of ignorance and later on realized that I was an ignoramus. <laughs> and I'm talking about in Islam, not even just before Islam, but after Islam too. Uh, and even sometimes after studying too. You know, after the first year of studying, after the second year of studying, after the third year of studying, pretty much every year you look back and you realize that you're an ignoramus. And you know, part of the difficulty of being in public is that for the rest of your life, you're going to look back. And you're going to hear the recording from two years ago and you're like, what was I saying? <laughs> and then two years before that, two years later, what was I saying? You know, and every time it improved. You know, you get a little bit better, inshallah. But that's life as well. You can't fight qadr, as we talked about before. That's how human beings are. The scholars, they talked about two types of ignorance. They talked about uh, uh, like a, a regular jahl, regular ignorance. Regular ignorance is basically you just don't know. Jahl basit. You know, you just don't know. Someone asks you, what kind of phone is this? And you say, you know, I'm actually not sure. I haven't seen that phone before. Okay, we just don't know. Then there's jan murakkab, just compound ignorance. Compound ignorance is the one where someone asks you, you know, what kind of phone is that? You're like, oh, that's the new Samsung. That thing is awesome. And then they turn around and there's this, like, apple on the back. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so jan murakkab is where you don't know and you think you know. So you don't know and you think you know. So 
you know, and, and subhanAllah, that one also is uh, very common. Did I ever tell you guys a story? I think I told you guys a story about drinking with the left hand versus the right hand. Told you guys a story. The hadith about drinking with the left hand. So this is a story of Jan Murakkah, of yours truly. <laughs> uh, that I almost corrected a major writer and scholar because he was drinking with his left hand and I thought absolutely prohibited there's no way this is allowed the hadith is clear and then alhamdulillah a friend of mine talked me out of it and uh, months later when I looked it up I realized that that's not the majority opinion that it's haram but rather that it's disliked so it would have been a very bad thing but I was very confident that I was right and it turns out that I was very wrong and you know that happens so how do you hedge against that this is the important question if, if the reality is that you don't really know when you're ignorant and you're bound to make mistakes as a human being how do you hedge against making really bad mistakes uh, so I think that there's there's two major things um, and they, they both have very similar word structure so inshallah it will be easy to remember which is expertise and experience expertise and experience so two major things that hedge against making major mistakes is expertise and experience so for expertise doesn't mean necessarily that you have to be the expert it's not possible right we can't be an expert in everything but it means that we should seek people who are actually experts and not necessarily only one of them especially in issues of deen unless you really know the person and trust the person you know maybe but you don't have to limit it to one person you can get a second opinion you know just like you would do if you had cancer or something you would get a second opinion um, so one of them is expertise you seek your own level of understanding you know you want to develop your ability more and more in all kinds of areas of life but you acknowledge that there's some things I don't understand and so I'm going to bring in the other side. The second one is experience. And there's just no, there's just no replacing experience. You can't, you can't jump it. Doesn't, doesn't work. Like, as, as many ups and downs, for example, like in being in, I'll give you a previous example and then we'll come to the present one. When I was in college and I was elected as MSA president, then I really wanted to resign, you know, I was like these, and I was a very arrogant young person, you know, these people, they just don't understand, we're wasting our time here, you know, all that kind of stuff, very, very arrogant, my love, forgive me, and one of the guys that I took his expertise happened to also fill that kind of position before, when he was younger, and he told me, he said, look, I understand all the stuff that you're going through, I mean, I may not agree, but I understand, and you need to just know that the experience that you're going to get as the MSA president in this one year is invaluable and it's going to help you in the rest of your life and you just need to suck it up and do it. And he was right. Okay. Same thing with being an imam. Being an imam is not always the most pleasant experience. But there's no other way to learn. There's really no other way to learn. Uh, and that, you know... Especially when it comes to community, like there's no other way to learn how to deal with community and people than to deal with community and people. There's no shortcuts. You can read all the books you want, it doesn't give you the knowledge. Like I was talking to someone recently who runs a very successful Muslim organization, 
And he said, people come to me all the time, they ask me where I studied, I tell them I got a street MBA. <laughs> Which means basically, I found people who knew what they were talking about, and I did it. And in the course of doing it, I became an expert. You know, one of the places you really see this is in writing. One of the fields where you see people teach that they don't actually always have degrees is writing. Why? Because they did it. The proof is in the pudding. Their experience gives them that ability to be able to show and say, like, yeah, I actually did this, I have the experience. And there's no way around it. You know what's very interesting in the story of Musa Surah Al-Qasas, that we were talking about earlier? That was, yeah. Surah Al-Qasas, did you read it yet? You've had like a whole 20 minutes <laughs> between then and now. <laughs> so, the Surah Al-Qasas, there's something very interesting, uh, which is that it tells the story of Musa, right? Salam. All the way up to where he got married, right? He's in, the, he's in Midian, he got married, he agrees with the father, uh, his father-in-law, that he'll work either eight years or ten years, whichever one he chooses. Then the next verse says, فَلَمَّا قَضَى مُوسَ الْأَجَلِ So he, this was at least an eight-year agreement, right? The verse ends, they finished, the, they agreed. The next verse says, so when he finished his term, he went and did this. You're like, what happened to the eight years? <laughs> this eight years of Musa's story, salam. Eight years. That you can't rush, that you can't change. That the eight years had to be there. Even if Allah didn't give you the details of the eight years, the eight years were important. Because the eight years, working in the field, taking care of your family, doing what you need to do, all of this is preparing Musa for what's coming later. But the, the, the idea is that you know that time is there and the experience is there and it has to be it has to be attained there's no shortcuts it just has to be attained and you know it's not always um, that's life you have to deal with it so this thing also is about the soul there's an education of the soul that's also necessary this will be maybe the last point we stop on and give people a couple minutes to breathe and then to make it upstairs in time for the salat so we don't miss the jama'ah um, which is, there's an education of the soul that's necessary. What's very interesting is that if you were to take someone who's blind, right? Take someone who's blind. And you tell them, you know, they bring them into this room. Tell them, you know, there's pillars in this room, they're painted white. And there's tables and they have this yellow tablecloth on them. And there's some nice calligraphy in the corner with the names of Allah. And uh, there's nice people here. You know, Allah preserve them. The person would say, Ami. They would believe you, right? They would say, Yeah, you know. I can't see it. The blind person can't see it. Right? They cannot see it at all. None of everything that was described they can see. But you would tell them and they would say that it's there. Right? If they trusted you, they would say, they would say that it's there. And you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that it is not their eyes that were blinded, but rather it was their hearts and their chests that were blinded. And the thing is that the heart also, there's an education of the heart and soul that is necessary because, you know, you can go to someone and tell them there's things that you can understand and experience with your heart that you haven't experienced and tell you, no, I haven't experienced it, it doesn't exist. The blind person will accept it. person who is physically blind with their eyes will accept that there's a world that exists in the physical world beyond what they can see. But the person who is spiritually blind, they won't accept it. Like, no, it doesn't exist. Things exist, we don't always understand them. You know, but there's, as, as one gets closer and closer to Allah, 
And as the heart gets cleaner and cleaner, there are things that the heart experiences that can't really, it's hard to explain, but the heart experiences them. And uh, so it's important to realize that there's an education of the soul that is necessary. This is the point. There's an education of the soul that is necessary to lead it down that path. Uh, and it's not about experiencing those things per se, but you have to just do what Allah wants you to do. Like there's, you know, like the statement of one of the early righteous people who said, if the kings knew what we have in our hearts, they would go and they would fight each other with swords to get, they would kill us in order to get, get it from us. Right? So what is he talking about? I don't know exactly, but there's something there. Right? So there's something there that the person can experience. When they attain to a high, higher level of spirituality and closeness to Allah, that's important. Uh, and, 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 you know, that's an education of the soul that's necessary. We'll break here and we'll come back after Salat. We'll continue with this verse, inshaAllah. So we're still on 13. Uh, yeah. 13 in the translation I have. I think I told you before, there's like one or two lines that are in some of the manuscripts and not in others. So 13 for what we have here. Uh, and we left off on ignorance. So the next thing here in this, in this line is, thanks to its foolishness, my ill-urging ego has paid no heed to the warner, white hair, and decrepitude. So the third major thing here, and the last one for this line, is that there are oftentimes warning signs before an actual issue arises. So he's saying that my, this soul of mine, that's this bad soul of mine, it's not paying attention because of its ignorance to the warner of gray hair and decrepitude. So oftentimes there are signs that are there uh, before an issue actually really arises and, and really, you know, uh, manifests itself in, in, a, in a very um, not as good way. So the first thing in that is that preventive care is always better than responsive care. It's just an important principle. Preventive care is always better. So this applies in medicine, this applies in spirituality, you know, this applies in, in knowledge. Um, like for example, one of the things that they, they used to say is that you should learn before you are put in a position of leadership. Because once you're in a position of leadership, you no longer have a chance to learn. You don't have time for that anymore. And so it's better to preventatively gain the prerequisite knowledge and experience that you need before you're put in that position. Uh, same thing with health, right? Like we could just destroy our bodies and, and do all kinds of terrible things and then go to the doctor and get stuff removed or, or whatever it might be. But that's just not good much better to be preventative. Uh, a good example of this would be Chinese medicine. Chinese medicine is much more preventative than after aftermath fixing. And there's an overall well-being related to that. So, uh, preventive is better. Same thing spiritually. So people go, and a lot of times you see this with Muslims, they go about their lives, they do whatever they feel like, then all of a sudden stuff seems like it's not going so well. So like, I don't know, I think I have the aim. You know, I have the eye, the eyes on me, or there must be some sort of jinn that are at play. Someone did magic on me. All of these things—it's possible, you know. But where was the preventive care? No, no preventative care. You know, like basically the point is, Allah is more powerful than all of those things. 
people get so caught up on jinn stories, on all of this kind of stuff. It's, you know, like one time in the masjid, it was in Ramadan. Imagine, right? Even we're in Ramadan. I think it was between Tarawih and Qiyam. And people around the masjid and so on and so on, they come to me, they're like, Shaykh, we saw some body figure walk behind the storage bins, and then it didn't come back. <laughs> we think it's a jinn. <laughs> it was just like, can we ever see angels? <laughs> it's, the only, it's the only jinn. So you're like, we're in Ramadan, it's the end of the month, you're here for Qiyam, everyone's fasting, there's all this Qur'an being the... Can you just see an angel for once? <laughs> it has to be jinn every single time. Hakeel Muslimun. You know, this is the way that we are. Right? So where is the preventative care? People get so worried about all of these things. Just pray your five prayers. Make your dhikr in the morning and the evening. Ask Allah to protect you. Read Ayatul Kursi. Read the three quls. You're fine. Don't overdo all of these type of things, but make sure the preventative care is there. Because where is, where, when, who is the person that shaitan can victimize? Can shaitan takes advantage of who? Those who are negligent of Allah. But if someone is in the remembrance of Allah, shaitan has no sabir. There's no route for shaitan to attack the, or deal with this person. Of course, this is not to negate other things, but to focus on the preventative care at this point. The other aftercare we can do. It's another conversation. The second thing here about this, this, this part of the verse is that this is one of the benefits of deep relationships. You know, one of the benefits of deep relationships is that people can tell when something's wrong. When all of your relationships are superficial, you don't have anyone that's going to help you. You don't have anyone that's going to catch you. Because if you really know someone well, you can tell. You know, uh, Someone recently is very close to me. I'll try not to give away their identity. Uh, I came and I saw them in a particular circumstance and I told them, hey, you know, how are you doing? And they just looked at me and they're like, I'm okay. And it was understood, you know. They're telling me, you know, there's some things that are going on. It'll be all right. I'm a little bit tired right now. Don't worry too much, but it's not great, you know. And then you understand and then, you know, you can follow up at another time or whatever. But the point is, if you have deep relationships, you can tell. It does, something's going on. There's a warning sign that, that is going to be raised. Uh, the indicators are there. But you can only notice those kind of things when you're paying attention. You know, if you're not paying attention to people, if you don't have close relationships, if, if you don't um, allow yourself to have close relationships, then that also will lead to, you, you can't notice anything. You know, it could be right there in front of you, and you don't notice it because someone's not paying attention. On a community level, I don't have an answer to this question, but on a community level, there's the same, you know, there's warning signs before a problem exists on an individual level, on relation, individual relationship levels. There's warning signs of illness on community levels. You know, there's, there's signs. Uh, some people, they say that communities are like organisms. Well, it's the community is a living organism. And with all living organisms, either you're living or you're dying. Should be should be growing, should be growing. If it's alive, it should be growing. So why doesn't a community grow? Why don't a group of people grow? Why are the relationships not there? What are the signs that, that are showing that there's problems underneath that maybe they haven't really surfaced yet, but there's something there? So there's these are just something to think about. The main point is something to think about that usually there's signs before something occurs that something is about to bubble over. Okay, so this is verse number 13. 
Which brings us to verse number 14. Inshallah. I'm going to try to get through 14 and 15. But we'll see. The next one is... <coughs> وَلَا عَدَّتْ مِنَ الْفِعْلِ الْجَمِيلِ قِرَى ضَيْفٍ أَلَمَّ بِرَأْسِ غَيْرِ مُحْتَشِمِ Which means, nor, so we're talking about the, that nafs, right? That nafs that is uh, bad, not well behaved, it's not paying attention to the warning, and it has not prepared fair deeds and hospitable welcome, for a guest who has taken up residence on my head. This <laughs> is a very interesting line. Neither has it prepared fair deeds and hospitable welcome for a guest who's taken up residence on my head. So he's going with this theme about how, you know, the idea is as one gets older, you know, sometimes we laugh and we joke in the Muslim community, people talk about, in some parts of the Muslim community, people will talk about how when you're young, you just do whatever you want. And then when you get older, you just go make hajj. Right? And then you start over again, retire in the masjid, read the Qur'an type deal, you know. And although that's funny, <laughs> in, in a very bad way, it's, it's funny in a bad way, but there's actually still, like there is an idea that once you get older, you should be paying attention. You know, that's one of the reasons, one of the people that Allah will not look at on the Day of Judgment uh, is, the, is the old man who commits zina. You know, because the idea is like, you're old, you shouldn't be really in that kind of stuff anymore. And you're so close to death that you should be thinking about Allah more. And you still did this. So it's a very bad deed. Um, but the idea is that as you get older, you're supposed to think about things more. You're supposed to consider things more. You used to see this in, in Egypt. I loved it, actually. Most of the neighborhood masajid, when the big ones, when you go into them in the mornings, you find all the old men sitting together reading the Quran. It's like standard. So always a group of old men reading the Quran together in the morning. Because they're like, retired, this is what we do. We're retired now, we sit in the masjid together, we drink tea, we make some jokes, read the Qur'an, go home. You know, that's like every day to do it. And the idea is that as you get older, again, you're supposed to be paying attention. Uh, so he has now this, uh, this, this guest who has taken up residence on his head. Which is who? It's the gray hairs. <laughs> the gray hairs are the guests who have taken up residence on his head and he has not prepared good deeds as a proper uh, hospitality towards that guest okay so the guest of the gray hairs is an indication that life is coming to an end it's moving towards its progression so what is the proper uh, hospitality towards the guest that is giving you that indication that you prepare some good deeds I have some good deeds. I have some good deeds to show that when I meet Allah, I can say I did this and I did this and I did so and so. So the first major point here that we want to reflect on is that caring for one's guests and honoring them is part of iman. You know, so this verse is talking about how he didn't do good to his guest. He didn't act properly with his guest. Caring for one's guest is iman. It's part of iman. The Prophet said. مَنْ كَانَ يُؤْمِنُ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ فَلْيَقُمْ خَيْرًا أَوْ لِيَصْمُدْ وَمَنْ كَانَ يُؤْمِنُ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ فَلْيُكْرِمْ ضَيْفَهُ وَمَنْ كَانَ يُؤْمِنُ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ فَلْيُكْرِمْ جَاهِرَهُ That whoever believes in Allah on the last day, then let them speak well or remain silent. And whoever believes in Allah on the last day, then let them be generous towards their guest. And whoever believes in Allah on the last day, let them be generous to their neighbor. It's very, very important that we think about the wording of these statements. 
This is not an issue of just adab, manners. It's not just an issue of being nice to people. It's not an issue of being considered to be generous. It's an issue of iman itself. If someone is a guest in your home, you have to treat them well. It's an issue of iman. And it's very, very fascinating actually. Some of the books, when you read the chapter on iman in the hadith books, you think like, you know, people generally when we talk about iman, of course, you'll find that too. Allah, His angels, His messengers, books, Yawm Al-Qiyamah, the good and bad of Qadr, you'll find all of that stuff in the chapter. Then you find all of these things. You don't have Iman until you speak while you remain silent. You don't have Iman until you take care of your guests. You don't have Iman if your neighbor is not safe from you. You don't have Iman if, um, if, if, if people are hungry, you know, someone next to you is hungry and you're full. You don't have Iman if all of these other things, they're all related to Iman. So it's like your faith itself is related to these actions that involve other people. You don't have Iman until you love for your brother or sister what you love for yourself. Right? All of those are actually, they're actions. They're not just, I believe that Allah exists, or I believe in the messengers, or so on. So these things are there, and they're part of faith itself. So it's, it's very important to remember that these everyday acts are part of that. Uh, and and the, some of the early scholars of um, of spirituality and tasawwuf and stuff, one of them they said, one, the one who is better in manners is better in tasawwuf. The one who is better in manners is better in their uh, like Sufism or spiritual development, whatever. We don't, we're not going to get caught up on words. And Ibn Qayyim, rahimahullah, he uh, commented on this and he said, actually, manners are the entirety of faith itself. So the one who is better in manners is better than you in deen. The whole deen. So, you know, these things are related to Iman. Second thing here is that it doesn't matter if they're a good guest or not. <laughs> it says, غير muhtashimi means, you know, this guest, it, it means غير mustahi. So this, this guest has taken up residence in his head and they have no, they have no shame about it. <laughs> you know, it's a shameless guest that has taken up residence in this person's head. It's shameless. Now, the thing is, your responsibility to be good to the guest is not an issue of whether or not they're a good guest. It's very important, we talked about before. We always look at things from two sides. The guest has etiquettes that they're supposed to follow. And the host has etiquettes that they're supposed to follow. If the guest doesn't do their part, whose fault is it? The guest. If the host doesn't do their part, whose fault is it? The host. So whichever one you are, worry about yourself. Worry about whether or not I'm doing the part that I'm supposed to do. You know, you don't... Like, if you're on this side of the conversation, you look at this side of the conversation. You don't jump onto the other side and look at that side. It's very, very important because it affects so many things in life. Worry about what is it that I'm actually supposed to be doing. Um, The next thing is that some of the host's responsibilities, what are they? What are some of the host's responsibilities? Uh, obviously, the first one is to be hospitable and generous. To be hospitable and generous. You know, what's funny is that when I was growing up, my other closest friend was also half Pakistani, half white, and also not religious. Okay, so we were like, I don't know how two of <laughs> of, <laughs> of that category of people fell in the same neighborhood. It's just the strangest thing, but it happened to be the case, and we were very close friends. And we would always laugh and joke about how when I go to his house and, you know, there's dinner or whatever I eat and we finish eating and then they force me to eat more food. His dad would force me to eat more food. I'd be like, what is this? It's so strange. And then people would come to my house 
and they'd eat and everyone would be happy and whatever and then my dad would force them to have more food and every time we'd be like this is so weird why are they forcing them to have more why do they keep forcing us to have more food we're completely not a part of that world the world of forcing food on other people <laughs> it's like a very very different culture um, but the point is that you're supposed to be hospitable and you're supposed to be generous and it's just a sign of someone showing their generosity now very, very important. You know, a great book, Islamic Manners by Shaykh Abdel Futah Abu Ghudda. Now, when I said that you, when someone, uh, part of the blessing of hearing a hadith with the chain of narration is that you get inducted into the, um, you feel a camaraderie with the people that are part of those chains, right? So I told, I, if you caught it, when I told you, I said that the, both the people that I heard the hadith from, Heard it from Sheikh Abdul Fatah Abu Ghudda. So the same one who wrote this Islamic Manners book. So there's a connection now. He says something is very important. He says being hospitable and generous is part of deen, yes. But moderation is the sunnah. Moderation is the sunnah. I've had experiences before. Where I just want to tell people like, Kifaya, it's enough. We're way past the limit of haram right now. <laughs> like, like we had haram overeating about two plates ago, and now we're <laughs> now we're just way beyond it. Right? It's, it's too far. And and you see this in some countries. Subhanallah, so much food wasted, just wasted, thrown in the trash because you have to have that huge plate when you have a guest. Even if they're going to eat a third of the plate, and the rest of it we throw it in the trash. It's terrible. So. Hospitality and generosity is, is required and moderation is the sunnah. If you want to be hospitable and generous to someone, it's not actually going to be determined by how much food you put in front of them. It's going to be determined by how much care you show for them. If you, spend, if you sit in front of them, you talk to them, you pay attention to them, you, you ask about them, you're actually concerned for them, then that's hospitality. If all you do is dump a bunch of food on them, you know, it could or it could not be, it could go either way, depending. Uh, but, don't misunderstand that in the sense that I think this is one of the great attributes of Islam and Muslims. So Muslims are very generous people, especially when you visit them at home. Very, very generous people and it's something that should be upheld. Just maybe, you know, a little bit lighter. Uh, second host responsibility is, or oh, don't overdo it on food, I already said that. Number three is, if someone's going to be staying at your place, you should show them the qibla. So for example, if they're going to be staying with you and they're going to be in a room at night or whatever it might be, make sure that you point out to them which direction the qibla is. So maybe that's by laying a rug on the floor in the room or whatever it might be, so that if they wake up in the middle of the night, they want to pray for you, inshallah, they know which way to turn. Or if they wake up for fajr and they need to pray, then they know which way to go. Uh, another one, of course, to make sure that they're comfortable. Uh, I think I told you guys about how apparently some Turks, Turkish people, they go so far as to iron the bed sheets. Like this is the the ihsan that goes into taking care of the guest. Iron the bed sheets. And I thought this was the most amazing thing. And then one time, so I met this young Turkish person. And I told him, Subhanallah, I heard that the Turks, you guys, you even uh, iron the bed sheets when you have guests. And they just looked at me like I was crazy, and not because. I was saying something crazy, not, not because I, I, I was saying something that's outrageous, it was because I was even surprised by it. <laughs> like, of course that's what we do. We iron the bed sheets. How could you not iron the bed sheets for your guests? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just a, a different level. 
Um, another one is you should put out new towels for them. You don't leave out like in the bathroom. Uh, you have towels that you use and they're all wet and nasty and stuff because you've been using them for wudu for six, seven days or four days or whatever it is. You don't leave that towel for them to use. Put out different towels for them to use. Or some people I've seen them have a nice little thing where they t- put paper towels in the bathroom. So you have, you know, like the ones you usually have in the kitchen. Put a roll like that in the bathroom and people always have that option. Um, another thing is that the host should put personal items out of sight. So, you know, put stuff away. And of course, the, ho- the guest has stuff as well, but we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about his hosting. Um, part of this in, in, in etiquettes and hosting and everything else is that uh, taste is what's really important. You, know, like it's, it's, you can give a whole lot of details, but if someone is not tasteful, they're not tasteful. Someone that doesn't have uh, care and concern, they don't have care and concern. So he's he's basically apologizing here and he's lamenting himself here because he had this guest and he didn't take care of the guest uh, the way that he should have. And uh, it matters, and, and why and why that's related to to what's going on here is that that guest again is the gray hair, but the gray hair is indicative of old age, which is um, it, it's it's showing that like there's an effort of of Disciplining the soul that needs to happen saying I didn't put forth those good deeds yet I need to discipline the soul and put forth those good deeds. So this is this is that one number 15, which is the one we'll stop on inshallah is Which has different translations so the one that's in Sheikh Abdul Hakim's version is had I understood I would not have honored it I would have used ketum dye to hid what it disclosed so had I understood what was going on I would have I would not have honored this guest of gray hair I would have used this dye to hide uh, to hide it in the first place but another way to translate it which I mean with all deference to Sheikh Abdul Hakim um, I personally feel more comfortable with and it's closer to the translation that Jesse has is had I understood that I would had I known that I would not honor it I would have used Ketim Dai to hide what it disclosed so it's different right the first one is saying if I knew what was going on I would not have honored it the second one is saying if I knew that I would not honor it I wouldn't have I would have hid it with the dye. so there are different meanings you could theoretically read it both ways so no Arabic is versatile like that. The main the main thing here is that he's he's um, he's basically saying you know if I knew that I wasn't going to be able to take this responsibility of being a good host to this guest that I'm having, then I would have made it so that the guest doesn't come. I would have used the die. The guest doesn't come. I pretend like he's, you know I evade it. So the main thing here is that if you can't take a responsibility, don't take it. And, uh, and, and I think it's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard because there's a balance in it. Uh, and and, and I hope nobody in the room who could possibly think that I'm talking about them right now should think that I'm talking about them. So just, just to clarify that. Um, but this is a general thing, especially with MSAs and MSUs and stuff that I, we see people all the time. They're like, uh, you know, I'm having this person do this or this person's supposed to do that and just nobody does anything, you know. 
oh, we're going to have this event. Who's going to make Who's gonna make the flyer? I'll make the flyer. Two weeks later, you're like, did you make the flyer? Oh, no, I forgot. Like, you just forgot? <laughs> the event's tomorrow. <laughs> like, where, where did the flyer go? Did you book the room? No, I didn't book the room. I was busy. Did you tell anyone? No, I was just busy. Okay, like, what, what is going on? You know, this idea of if you, if you take the responsibility, you take it. Otherwise, don't take it. And uh, so the, the Muslim should, and, and of course, this is, all of us fall into guilt with this at different points in our lives in different ways. Um, but we should try to be good to our word and strong in our resolve. Uh, because if, if there's no, you know, if, if there's no trust in what you tell people, what we tell people, then there's no, if, if there's no reliability in what we tell people, there's no trust. If there's no trust, there's no community. We just can't have it. There's no organization, there's no community, there's no relationship. If there's no trust, there's nothing. So when, you, when, when we take something, it's, it's there. Um, and so it, the, you know, the collective responsibility of the, be, the believers cannot be fulfilled without it. And, and so it's very, very important. Uh, and then we should have resolve you know, when, when we say that we're going to do something. Part of that, of course, is knowing our own capacity, which again is hard because things do have to get done. You know, um, and and I'll come to that later on. But one one issue of like s- saying that you're going to do something and resolve that happened in the time of the Prophet There's two of them. One of them is very light and funny, and the other one's more serious. The one that's very light was that the Prophet One time, someone asked to meet with him at a certain time and place, and he didn't show up. So the Prophet saw him at that time and place. Three, day, I think it was three days later, and he told him, you know, you've caused me some trouble. You know, you caused me some difficulty. You said you were going to meet me in this time and place, you didn't come. And then, you know, I was waiting for you. So the idea is the Prophet said he was going to meet the person, he met the person. Uh, the more serious one is in the Battle of Uhud. The Battle of Uhud is a very, very important battle in the life of the Prophet. Very, very important. Uh, some very interesting things happened. You know. The Prophet ﷺ, he establishes shura, consultation, as a sunnah in Badr and in Uhud. And Uhud is very interesting. When, when they found out that this army was coming and they were going to have to engage with them, the Prophet ﷺ, it was kind of understood that his position was that he preferred to stay inside of Medina and let the army come to them and they defend the city from inside the city. And uh, initially when he asked the companions, some of the older and wiser companions, this is the position that they took. So there's a gathering, you know, these major companions, old, young, so on. Older ones said, you know, let's just wait for them to come. Some of the, some of the Ansar, they said, look, this city of ours, Medina, she's never been violated. Like, if we stay here, we're going to be okay. We'll protect the city, and so on. And then what they noticed was that some of the younger companions... They're getting a little bit, you know, they're getting a little bit excited. And then one of them stood up and they're like, Ya Rasulullah, last time when we were in Badr, we were so few. And this time we're much more. And we don't want them to think that we're afraid. Let's ride out and meet them. You know, like the Sahaba were. Let's ride out and meet them. And then when they took this stance and more people got excited. Then one of the older companions and the Ansari was like, yeah, why don't we do that? So then eventually the majority decided... Let's ride out and meet them for Uhud. Which is what ended up happening, right? It wasn't in the city, it was just outside the city. So they ride out, they decide that they're going to ride out, right? So they, they break. Some time passes, 
And the Prophet ﷺ goes, he puts on his armor, puts on his turban, he gets ready for battle. And, he, and, and then while he's doing that and as he's coming out, some of the senior companions are telling everyone else, they're like, what did you guys do? It was clear that the Prophet ﷺ thought that we should stay in the city. And then you guys did this and now we're going to go outside the city. Right? And, and we should like, they started to regret it. So they came to the Prophet ﷺ, they told him, Ya Rasulullah, like, why don't we, you know, maybe we should just stay. And he told them, it's not befitting for a Prophet to take off his armor once he's put it on. Until God judges between him and his enemies. And he went out to the battle. The battle is, we already took the decision. We're not going back on the decision. Now the decision was made. And we're going. So it was very, very like firm stance. right? Part of this also, this issue of responsibilities and taking on a responsibility, um, is that good has to be done in the end. You know, I mean, it's just... The world is not the happiest place. There's a lot of injustices and good has to be done. And someone has to do good. So we have to balance this. We shouldn't take on so many things that we destroy ourselves and our families and it's just not possible for us to do it. But we shouldn't go to the other side either. And so there's, there's a balance in between here. And in this light, there was a very um, striking statement that I came across this week that is to be quite honest, kind of like terrifying me. Um, so I'll share it with you so that we can all be terrified together, inshallah. And that is, إِذَا عَظُمَتْ نِعْمَةُ اللَّهِ عَلَى الْعَبْدِ كَثُرَتْ حَوَائِجُ النَّاسِ إِلَيْهِ فَإِذَا تَهَاوَنَ بِهِمْ عَرَضَ نِعْمَتَهُ لِلزَّوَالِ The Arabic speakers, anyone understood this? It's a very, very heavy statement. If the blessing of Allah upon a person becomes more becomes greater the blessing of Allah upon a person becomes greater then the needs of people towards that individual increase the needs of people towards that individual increase so if they take lightly others they don't care for their needs and all of these kind of things then they have subject they have subjected their blessing to be removed it's very scary, very very scary hadith. And it's not a hadith; it's a fin khabar, and then it didn't say the source, so it's like a statement that's kind of uh, passed around. But my point is, in all of that, that things still have to get done. Good has to be done, and you know, as, so there's a, there's a balance in it. But as much as possible, uh, we should try to be to be good to our word, uh, and and recognize that we have limits, and that Allah is generous. So he's saying he wishes he would have taken care of that guest in a better way. So from here, inshallah, next time we'll move on to the next verses, which shift a little bit. They're still in the nafs, but it shifts. So the next verses, it shifts into um, like trying to control one's desires. It's a whole different issue than this. So we'll go into that next time. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept from us and to forgive us of our sins and our shortcomings and to help us to do good in this life. Uh, so that he may be pleased with us in the next Ameen. Wassalamu alaikum wa sallam Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam taslima kathira. Zakum alaikum.